Hey, good evening. Welcome back to another week of Bible Study Fellowship. It's great to have you here. Let me go ahead and open us up in prayer, and we'll get started. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the opportunity we have tonight to look at uh, the lives of Elijah and Ahab. And Lord, the way that you were working in godly people in a time when many in the land of Israel had turned away from you. Lord, I pray that you would help us understand more about your word uh, and help us, Lord, to to grasp how you can accomplish that which we cannot uh, as we look at the life of Elijah, the life of Ahab tonight. Amen. So we're looking at Elijah and Ahab again this week. We are uh, kind of slowing down our study of kings, and we're focusing again our second week looking at uh, these two men in the northern kingdom of Israel. Ahab is the king, Elijah is the prophet, uh, and if you remember from last week, uh, Elijah has just had this great victory because of what God demonstrated on Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal have been killed. Uh, Elijah has revealed, uh, or God has revealed to the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom, and you know to anybody who was willing to, to look and see that God was in control, that Elijah was his prophet. And I think Elijah was looking forward to moving on to his next victory. It reminds me a little bit of the situation I was in in high school on my rowing team. The The team to beat in the years that when I was rowing was the St. John's Prep School. I don't remember where they were from, but I remember that we had raced against them a number of times, and it always seemed like they would just destroy us in the race. They were, they'd be way ahead of us. There'd be open water between their boat and our boat, and, and they were just so much better, so much faster than we were. And uh, that was until one race that we had uh, kind of in my junior year, and it was an early race in the season, and I remember that we finished second to St. John's, and the race was so close that uh, you know our boats were overlapping as we kind of went down the, the waterway. Our, our boats overlapped, and they only beat us by four seats. It was about four or five seconds that they were ahead. Uh, and I remember as we got off the water, even though we had come in second, the, the, the guys on my team, we felt like this was a victory. We were thrilled. I can still remember the way that my friend Chris looked and the, and the, the tone of voice when he said, touchable. That's all that he said after the race. But we all have the sense that the St. John's team was finally within our grasp. And all the training that we did for the rest of that year when we were on doing our dry land workouts, running up and down hills, you know, doing weight training, whatever it was that we were doing, the, the team thought about uh, that we were working towards achieving a goal of being able to finally beat the St. John's crew team. We had a big regatta coming up with them at the end of the year. And uh, we felt like they were touchable. We had a chance to be able to beat them. That big regatta came, we raced against the St. John's team, and we lost. Uh, and I, I think that Elijah was feeling like this as well. You know, he, he, was, he had this sense of frustration and disappointment as, as uh, he begins to interact with Jezebel and the people of Israel after this Mount Carmel event. He was expecting to go from his victory on Mount Carmel and move forward. And instead, what met him was kind of the same old thing that he had experienced in the past, which was opposition, frustration, and a sense of futility. Uh, the good news for Elijah, the good news for us, is that God is going to accomplish what we cannot. God is going to accomplish what we cannot. And I think that's our main truth 
for this lesson. We're in 1 Kings 19, so go ahead and get your Bibles out, turn them on, and we're going to start from 19. We're going to look at 19, 20, and 21. We're going to look, first of all, at uh, chapter 19. We're going to look at Elijah. And then we're going to look at 20 and 21. We're going to look at Ahab, Ahab's battle with Syria and Ahab's vineyard, or Ahab's vineyard problems, perhaps I should I should say. But uh, that's the plan of what we're going to do tonight. So Jezebel, Ahab's wife, heard about what had happened at Mount Carmel, and Jezebel decided there was only one thing to do, and that was to send a messenger to Elijah and tell him that his life was forfeit. She was going to dedicate her life to killing him. Now, we know from the end of chapter 18 that Ahab and Elijah and Jezebel are all at the city of Jezreel. So that's where they were that's where these events are happening. This is where the messenger comes. He tells Elijah, "Your life is forfeit." And uh, Elijah is afraid. Elijah at this point begins to flee. Uh, he heads south away from Jezreel. The, the place that he ends up when he finishes this first part of his journey at the end of verse 3 is uh, the, the town of Beersheba. This is about 100 miles away from Jezreel, so this was a long journey uh, by foot as it began with. But chapter 3 of verse 19 tells us that Elijah was afraid. Uh, fear was the motivating factor for uh, what Elijah was doing at this point in his earthly ministry. And he, he must have realized this because as he gets to Beersheba, he had some time to reflect on what he was doing and why he was doing it. But at Beersheba in verse 4, he, he, he comes underneath a broom tree, and this is what he says. Uh, it is enough now, O Lord, take, my, take away my life. For I am no better than my father's, and uh, Elijah laid down and he slept. And I, I wonder what part of Israel's history Elijah was thinking about. Uh, perhaps times when fear had gripped the people and it had been their motivator. A uh, situation like Exodus 14, when the nation of Israel is backed up against the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army and their chariots are on their way, and the people turn and they look to Moses and they were afraid, and they said, what have you done bringing us out of Egypt? Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Uh, perhaps another time when the people were afraid was Exodus 16. People were hungry. There was no food. There was no water. And uh, the people were frustrated. They thought they were going to expire because of the lack of food. And they turned to Moses and they said, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt. When we sat by pots of meat, there's many stories in the book of, of uh, Exodus about God's people being afraid, uh, God's people not having confidence in him, and as a result, fear becomes the thing that drives them. And I think Elijah was realizing that he was potentially no better than his ancestors because his fear was what was driving him. Well, we can see what God did in this situation for Elijah. Uh, God miraculously fed and rested Elijah and then sends him on a 40-day and 40-night journey. And this this number seems to be significant if we think about, you know, what else happened in the Bible for 40 days and 40 nights. Why is this time significant? Uh, The rain and the time of Noah was for 40 days and for 40 nights. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai or Mount Horeb receiving the, the commandments from God for 40 days. 
the uh, Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting prior to his temptation by Satan. And so this, this journey feels significant in a spiritual sense. It has some deeper meaning that we want to understand for it. And uh, we also know that this journey was special because after Elijah had, Elijah had been fed by the angel, he'd been given a warm cake and some water, he was able to travel, it seems to be continuously, for 40 days and 40 nights back to that same mountain uh, where Moses had met with God and really where the nation of Israel was formed. If we think about the people who were Elijah's ancestors, this is really the place where the nation of Israel began. He's going back to his ancestral roots. And I, I wonder why. I wonder what the reason was, why that place was special. Certainly it was special um, to the people of Israel, but this just seems to be the place where God wants Elijah to go because they have a meeting. Elijah's in a cave. They're on Mount Horeb, again, the same mountain that Moses was on. And uh, God begins to inquire of Elijah. He asks him a question. He says, Elijah, what are you doing here? The word of the Lord came to Elijah and said to him, what are you doing here in verse 9? This is Elijah's, Elijah's explanation. Notice all of the I language. I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am, uh, I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Uh, that's down in uh, verse, uh, going into verse 11 there. And so Elijah, Elijah feels alone, he feels isolated, and uh, you know it, it's interesting to think about what is God going to do to help turn Elijah's heart and situation around. Uh, and so this is what God does. God says uh, that he, is, he wants him to go stand on the mountain and God's going to pass by, and uh, God is going to present himself in a massive windstorm, in a massive earthquake, in a fire, and then finally God begins to speak to Elijah in a low whisper. God was in the whisper, Elijah goes out, and this feels very similar to the experience that Moses had when Moses was on the mountain and wanted to see the glory of God uh, after the situation with the golden calf. Uh, God begins to speak to Elijah, and God tells him some information, and if we look at what God says to Elijah, it doesn't feel very encouraging. Uh, I, I suppose the part that's encouraging is the part where God explains, hey, there's still 7,000 people in the, the land uh, who have not kissed Baal. But I think that by bringing Elijah back to this special place, what God is reminding Elijah of is God's presence was, was visible and experienced here by the nation of Israel. And so by bringing Elijah back, what, what God is saying is, Elijah, I am with you. I am present with you. Uh, this, this place uh, is the place where God began to dwell with his people. Uh, the word that they used in the Old Testament was to tabernacle, and the people learned how to build a tent of meeting and how to have sacrifices and how to, how, to, how to have God dwell with them. And I think this was a reminder for Elijah by tying him into the past that this is a God who is dwelling, who is present with his people, and it began uh, at Mount Horeb, at Mount Sinai. 
I think it also tied in uh, Elijah back into that story of the Exodus where God, again, was fighting with his people by his presence. The cloud uh, confused Pharaoh's army. And in Exodus 14, uh, God said to the people, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. You do not need to do anything. And, and, and I think in the same way, God is saying to Elijah, Elijah, you might not be big enough for the task at hand, but I am. I am. I have a plan to deal with the Egyptians. I had a plan to deal with the Egyptians back in the day of your forefathers. They weren't big enough to handle Pharaoh. And Elijah, I have a plan today to deal with Ahab. I have a plan today to deal with those who worship Baal. I have a plan today to deal with those who are opposed to you. And God begins to tell that plan to Elijah. He begins to reveal a bit of the future to Elijah. Elijah is given instructions uh, to go back and he's going to anoint some future kings. He's going to go and anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. He's going to anoint Jehu to be king over Israel. And he's going to then go anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat, uh, to be a future prophet. And so God is revealing to Elijah the people who are going to deal with Ahab and who are going to deal with Ahab's family. You can see um, that uh, the people who are going to deal with Ahab, this is what the Lord says, uh, the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall, shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Uh, and so God is going to deal with the idolatrous practices that are occurring in the northern kingdom. And we can see that as Elijah leaves Mount Horab, he begins to faithfully carry out the Lord's instructions. He's, he's able to go back. He's able to call Elisha. There's a great story about that in, your, in the Bible, in, in, your, in your text, 19 through, uh, through the end of the chapter. Uh, but, but Elijah is now stepping forward in obedience to God. And I think the principle for this first part of our, of our scripture passage is that God can deliver us from overwhelming opposition. God can deliver us from overwhelming opposition. There's a great scene in the cult classic movie, uh, The Princess Bride, where Inigo Montoya is fighting against uh, the Dread Pirate Roberts, and he's losing. He's losing the sword battle, but he is wearing a smile, and the reason for his confidence is that he's not left-handed, but he's been fighting left-handed. Uh, and he knows that he's going to have an opportunity to, to turn the table around with his hidden strength of his right hand. Now, we know for Inigo that if you know the story, you know that his confidence in his right hand uh, ends up failing him. But I think one of the things that we need to remember is that there are times in our lives when we are going to feel like we are being out, outmatched, overpowered. We are not up to the tasks that we feel like we need to do, either because we're too tired or there's so much that's going on, or we feel like there's things that we have to do that we just don't have the right gifting. We don't have the right abilities. The need is too great. We're not equal to it. And I think that we have to remember that our real power lies not in our, our left hand, but it's in our right hand. And our right hand is not our own skill or our own fortitude or our own ability with a sword like Inigo Montoya had, but it's the power of God. 
The power of God rests with his people. Now, God's power doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to be able to vanquish our foes. Uh, we shouldn't think of the right hand of God being the fist. Uh, but instead, sometimes the right hand of God means that we'll be able to love our enemies, uh, that we'll be able to stand up underneath great persecution, that we'll be able to speak truth. Uh, many of those who relied upon the right hand of God had their lives taken from them. But they were able to claim God's promises, God's faithfulness, nonetheless. So perhaps there's a part of your life or a part of my life where, you know, we need to switch hands. We need to switch to the right hand. We need to switch over to that hidden strength, that hidden power that is us relying upon the strength of God. Perhaps there's uh, stories that you can tell your group or other people uh, about ways that God has delivered you when you've been willing to switch uh, from the left hand of your own weakness to the right hand of God's power. We saw, we're going to see Elijah continue to faithfully serve the Lord, even though he felt outmatched and outnumbered uh, as he as he fled to Mount Horeb. But uh, as Elijah switched to his right hand, Uh, and rely upon the Lord, he was able to continue to serve uh, and to do great things for the Lord in the the northern kingdom of Israel. We're going to turn our focus now back to Ahab. Ahab is still king. Uh, We've gotten a bit of a flavor of what kind of king Ahab is, but uh, Ahab found himself in trouble because his kingdom was being invaded by a king from Syria called Ben-Hadad. The name Ben-Hadad means uh, son of Baal, and so uh, there's a there's a figural invasion of the, the of the land of Israel that that's happening here. This is kind of an enacted parable. Uh, Israel has was already overcome with worship of a foreign god, and now there's a foreign king who's known as the son of Baal, who is physically trying to destroy or at least make uh, the kingdom vassal to him. Uh, and, and despite Elijah's words from the last chapter, there is another prophet that shows up and speaks with Ahab and indicates that the Lord was going to bring about a victory, even though uh, Ahab is vastly outnumbered with this this massive army of 32 kings that were allied against him. Uh, the prophet comes and explains that uh, the Lord will deliver Ahab, and the reason that uh, God is going to do this is that Ahab, uh, God wanted Ahab to know, and this is looking down in uh, verse 20, uh, verse uh, 13, uh, I, will give you, I will give it into your hand this day, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So the Lord was not involving himself in geopolitical affairs just for no reason. Uh, the Lord involves himself to reveal truth to Ahab and also to Ben-Hadad as uh, the, arm, the battle is going to unfold. Uh, but there is another prophet who is who is around at this time. Uh, the prophet talks about a battle strategy that will result in junior officers, junior soldiers leading the attack. Not maybe the best military strategy, but when we are obe- obeying God, uh, obedience to God following his direction is going to always trump what might make sense militarily or otherwise. We can see as the chapter unfolds that the uh, the Sumerian battle up in the hills is a victory for Ahab, but we receive a warning from the prophet once again that uh, Ben-Hadad is going to come back. The prophet lets, lets Ahab know as we get to the uh, uh, verses you know, 24, 25, uh, he's going to come back. 
He's going to be just as big as he was before. Uh, this time, Ahab decides to come back and fight around the region of uh, Aphek. Uh, Ben-Hadad figures that maybe the God of the Israelites is only effective in the mountains, and so they're going to geographically relocate and see if uh, this God is weaker in the plains. Uh, God had other plans. God was going to reveal to Ben-Hadad that his strength extended from the, from the mountains to the plains. And again, uh, the, the army of Ben-Hadad is defeated miraculously by the Lord. You can read about some of the numbers and some of the ways that this occurred. Uh, and then there's a good part of the, a good part of this section that, uh, reveals to us how Ben-Hadad is ultimately captured, brought before Ahab, and Ahab essentially agrees to let Ben-Hadad go. Uh, if we look at the end of, uh, some of the verses here, towards the end of verse 34 in chapter 20, I will let you go on these terms. So he made a covenant with Ben-Hadad and let him go. We're going to see uh, this story of the battle with Ben-Hadad conclude with a prophet. Uh, it's, a, it's a great story. Please take a look at it. Look at what happens with the lions. But the prophet uh, tells a story to Ahab as a disguised northern uh, Israelite soldier. He's got his cloak on, he's bandaged up, he looks like he's wounded, and he tells a story to Ahab about how he was supposed to watch uh, an enemy, a captive. And the soldier got distracted, the captive got away, and the consequence for this soldier is either A, pay a talent of silver, which would have been a huge amount of money that he didn't have, or forfeit his life. And as the prophet explains this to Ahab, Ahab's like, that sounds about right. Uh, your life should be forfeit for, for losing track of the prisoner that you were supposed to guard. And the prophet at that moment kind of takes off his garments and is like, aha! Uh, it feels a little bit like Nathan, uh, you know, kind of convicting David after the sin of Bathsheba, if you're familiar with uh, that from uh, 1 Samuel. Uh, but but again, like there's this this moment where the prophet reveals to Ahab, like you were the man who was supposed to deal with Ben Hadad, and you let him go. Uh, your passage tells us as we come to the end of the chapter, uh, because you have let go out of your hand the man Ben Hadad, whom I, the Lord, speaking to the prophet, the Lord, I have devoted to destruction. Therefore, your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And so uh, when something was devoted to destruction, when God has devoted something to destruction, uh, it was supposed to be destroyed. Ahab doesn't follow those directions and ultimately uh, is rebuked by the prophet, and it's going to be life for life in this situation. Finally, we go into 21. We read about, uh, we learn a little bit more about Jezebel's character in 21. Uh, It seems, as, as we look at the end of chapter 20, Ahab went back to Samaria. Uh, He was vexed and sullen, and it seems like this is an emotional state that Ahab's in quite a bit. Uh, He wanted to get a hold of a vineyard from a man named Naboth. I'm probably saying that wrong. Uh, But Naboth didn't want to sell it. He said, you know, look, this vineyard was given to me, to my people, uh, as a part of the land distribution that happened at the time of Joshua. This is my land. This is my vineyard. It's God's provision for me. I don't want to sell it. So again, we see Ahab uh, being vexed and sullen, and he won't eat, uh, and he's all depressed because he can't buy this vineyard that he wanted to buy. Uh, and so Jezebel has a plan, uh, essentially using the king's power. She comes up with a mechanism to have uh, Naboth uh, uh, 
convicted of a felony or of a crime and ultimately killed. And this is, allows Ahab to take possession of this vineyard that he so desired. The result of this is that the Lord shows up through Elijah and he indicates Ahab, because you have done this, because you have, have taken uh, this land from your neighbor, because you have killed Naboth, uh, your life again is is going to be forfeit. And not only is it not only are you going to die, Ahab. This is what the Lord says. Uh, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up, and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Basha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. Uh, He also has words for Jezebel about the dogs that are going to get a hold of her. Uh, And so this is a very strong rebuke that Elijah delivers to Ahab. Um, Surprisingly, Ahab repented. Uh, and and you can there's some questions in the lesson that let you grapple with you know what well, is this a genuine repentance but uh, this is what the Lord said about Ahab have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me because he has humbled himself before me I will not bring the disaster in his days but in his son's days I will bring the disaster and I think the principle from this section is that God can deliver us from ourselves. God can deliver us from ourselves. One way that I think you can identify if you are a criminal mastermind is if you build something with a self-destruct button. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, Usually, this is something that's reserved for movies or cartoons. Uh, You press this button, and the whole thing is going to blow. And what, you know, we as people don't really have self-destruct buttons, but through the ways that, that sometimes we choose to live our lives, it seems like we're looking for one. We're looking for something that we can press on that will bring about greater misery, greater suffering, uh, greater unhappiness for us. <clears throat> this was certainly uh, what, what Ahab had been going about in his life doing. He, he's continually looking for, for something that he thinks is going to help him but ultimately brings about his own destruction. And finally, it seems like this event uh, with Naboth brought about that, that button that he was finally able to push on. Um, and the, the reality is, is that, you know, we, we sort of go through life like Ahab. Um, we, we, re- we rebel against God. We, we push against the, the, the things that he wants us to choose, and we want to make our own choices. We want to do our own things. We want to live our lives our own way, and ultimately this leads to our self-destruction. We're, we're looking for that button that we can push on that we think will give us freedom, but instead brings about uh, destruction. Fortunately for Ahab, God intervened. God intervened in Ahab's life, and uh, if, if only for a moment helped Ahab realize that the path that he was walking on was not one that would lead to his flourishing, is not one that would lead uh, to uh, his betterment or the betterment of the people of Israel. And, and maybe for the first time in his life, Ahab heard him. 
And so for you and for I, there's a lesson that's here, and that, and that basically is, is what's the self-destructive path that you and I are walking on? Or perhaps what's the self-destructive path that you or I can, are considering? What are the things that we're doing where you know we sort of have this idea, probably not the best thing for us, but I really would like to do it. I think I will feel like a more complete person uh, if I could accomplish this thing that I know God might not have for me. Perhaps you can think of some ways that either God is or God has intervened in your own life to sort of stop the destruction countdown, right? It's, you know, like there's always the countdown sequence on the self-destruct. Have there been times in your life when God has stepped in and has stopped the countdown from occurring? We see it with Ahab. Uh, We see God's strong words of warning turning Ahab back to the Lord Uh, And perhaps God is going to be intervening or has intervened or will intervene soon as you and I have self-destructive processes that are working to tear us down. Well, friends, uh, as we looked at this passage this week, we've seen God deliver Elijah from his fear. Uh, We have seen God deliver the people of Israel from overwhelming odds. Uh, And we've seen God deliver Ahab to a place of humility. Uh, What might be God doing in your life and in my life to deliver us? Let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for uh, the opportunity to consider this section of 1 Kings. Lord, uh, I pray that you would help us identify those ways that we are trying to destroy ourselves. Uh, And Lord, thank you that you love us enough to help try to figure out some way for us to stop doing that. I pray that you would deliver us, Lord. You delivered Ahab, you delivered Elijah, and Lord, in the situation that we're in, I pray that you would deliver me and deliver my friends uh, from that which would destroy us. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a great week.